it's a real privilege for me to be sitting here doing an interview with the only person with whom we've done a podcast who's ever bought me an ice cream, the only person who's ever woken me up in the morning with a cup of tea, because it is my father on earth, Terry Virgo. So who are you, Terry Virgo? Are you a safari guide? or? <laughs> I became a Christian when my sister, who had been living at home with us in Brighton as a family, went to London to live with a view to going on the stage, beginning to get small parts in plays, but then met someone who'd been converted through Billy Graham's visit to London. She came home one weekend in 1956 and uh, told me she'd become a Christian. And I thought, how do you become a Christian? Uh, she said she'd been born again, which I thought was even more preposterous. How do you get born again? What are you talking about? And then proceeded to tell me that she had really met with Christ and was now following Jesus Christ, which was amazing to me. She'd never shown any interest in such things before. But of course, it was my sister, not a stranger, knocking my front door. And that same evening, having talked for quite a while, there came a moment when she said, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? And I said rather casually, he's supposed to have been raised on the third day, isn't he? And she said, yes, and that means he's alive. And I believe I was born again uh, in that moment when I suddenly heard Jesus is alive and I realised suddenly there was something here. At the end of that evening I knelt and uh, asked Christ to forgive my sin and come into my life. I believe I was born again that night. And your sister, she hadn't been a practising nun or a, some sort of a cleric. She'd literally been in London and she had heard Billy Graham herself? or No, uh, it was someone who had been led to Christ through Billy Graham's visit. And um, my sister, her whole focus was to go on the stage. She was very, very focused on, on the theatre. Mm -hmm. And they used to go to the Theatre Royal in Brighton every week when she was there. And they, as I say, began to get small parts. She'd been to drama college. That was her focus. Mm -hmm. And the girl who led her to Christ herself was leaving all of that behind her, having found Christ. Wow. This had a radical impact on my sister. And that sister, her name was Marion, and uh, she actually went to be with the Lord last year, 31st of October, Reformation Day. Mm. You had heard the gospel in, the, in its raw state, and you yourself made a profession of faith. My, my parents uh, were not believers at that time. I'd never seen a Bible in my home. Um, my parents never went to church. Mm -hmm. Many years later... Praise God, I had the joy of leading both my parents to the Lord in, mm. after they'd retired, probably in the early 70s. Oh, wonderful. Excellent stuff. Now, have you always lived in uh, the Sussex area? I've lived in Sussex most of my life. Uh, I was, um, yes, raised in Brighton. Then I went uh, to, I started commuting to London to work for five years after I left school. And then I I lived in London when I went to London uh, Bible College and then also uh, went to uh, live in America for two years in the, in the mid-90s. Mm -hmm. I lived in Seaford in Sussex for 11 years and then I've been back in Brighton for something like, I guess, 30 years, which was my main 
uh, time of ministry, I guess. Mm, mm. And then more recently in London for five years again, and now just moved back to Sussex again. London Bible College must only have begun a few years before you went there, is that right? How long had it been going before you arrived, do you remember? I don't know. And who was it who taught you there? Who was well, teaching? Well, the, the lecturers, uh, Dr. Kevin had pioneered the college and uh, he interviewed me, but tragically actually passed away just before I went up to college. So Dermot MacDonald, who was the vice principal, was then principal for a year. And uh, the lecturing team included uh, Jeffrey Grogan, who was, I found, the most inspiring, uh, Leslie Allen, who went on to write commentaries and uh, had quite a successful ministry as a lecturer, Donald Guthrie, who was a real authority on New Testament introduction and mm. wrote a great uh, New Testament theology. Mm. There was a very fine team of lecturers, mm. actually. Mm. And he would say things that you'd learned there, you remembered uh, on in on through life. I think I think there were some some good things. I'm not excited about Bible College as such because I feel that Jesus trained people while actually doing things, uh, whereas Bible College takes you out of normal contact with unbelieving people. So for me, for three years, I hardly met a non-Christian. So I mm. think there's a very negative mm. impact of being at Bible College. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, I was probably witnessing most days. So I think there's a real negative. Mm. I would rather train people while they're still in contact with right. no normal situations. Were you around any people who retained relationship with? and uh... Yeah, I've had good friends there. I was in my year. Os Guinness was a contemporary. Peter Lewis was a contemporary. It was a joy to know those guys who went, of course, one knew them as a student. So you didn't realise what huge impact people like Os Guinness were going to have subsequently. And Peter mm -hmm. Lewis, uh, those two. A man called Biancato, who was a prominent evangelical leader in West Africa, but tragically uh, died in a sea accident as a young man, but was quite a prominent black Christian leader, a man called Phidias Dube from uh, Zimbabwe, who had quite a leading role there when he left college. Mm -hmm. I guess my closest friend was a man called Arnold Bell, who went on to become the pastor of a church in Sheffield, died a few years ago, but had a wonderful teaching ministry. Mm -hmm. oh, lovely. So you, and you were in London at a time, so this is, uh, what, what years were you in London? 60? Yeah. Uh, 65 to 68. Right. So that would have been at the time when Lloyd-Jones, um, John Stott and many other pr prominent Bible teachers were exercising their ministries. Were you exposed to them? Yes, I used to get to Westminster Chapel particularly as often as I could and that was usually a Sunday evening. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, you, did you, so that was when Lloyd-Jones would be preaching his evangelistic messages. Yes. Uh -huh. And what was it like to actually hear Lloyd-Jones speaking at the oh, chapel? Quite remarkable. Um, yeah, I, I, I rarely had uh, sat under the ministry of a man with such impact in the, in the word. His style of preaching may be a little dated now. There was no humour. Uh, he preached for a long time, but you were captivated from beginning to end. We were there in his last year. He finished in 68 and we were there in 68. Wow. So, I was there in his last year, mm. and uh, he was doing an evening series on the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember one year, and I don't know, week rather, I don't know how he drifted into it, but he got into Romans 1. Uh, he would have been started in, in Acts somewhere. And that phrase, God gave them up, uh, I remember him preaching on that in a way that when he finished preaching, 
the whole congregation sat in silence. I think you had to sing a closing hymn because that's what happened at the chapel. Uh, but after we'd sung the hymn, uh, I think very, very few people moved. They just sat. And I think it's the nearest I've been to, I don't know if you could call it revival, but that sense of frightening encounter with God, wow. of uh, some real awe, it was phenomenal. And often there were times when I sat listening and thinking, well, if Spurgeon was greater than this, I don't know how he could have been greater mm. because it was just such an awesome privilege to hear him preaching week after week. Mm. Do you ever get to meet him? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Did you, did you uh, go out on the town together? Did you go, to, <laughs> did you go shopping? Uh, he <laughs> preached a phenomenal sermon uh, in his act series on Philip in Samaria, which was quite stunning. And uh, I went to see him afterwards to talk to him because what he had talked about was a demonstration of the presence of God in terms of signs, wonders, miracles, which accompanied Philip's preaching in Samaria. And at those, in those days, I was often having uh, difficulties, even confrontation at London Bible College because I was uh, growingly interested in the power of God and was being uh, encouraged to turn away from such things at Bible College. But here was the mighty Lloyd-Jones, who was hugely esteemed mm. at London Bible College, preaching uh, about these wonderful things. Mm. So when I went to see him, I told him my frustration and how overwhelmed I was by his sermon. And uh, he said to me, to my surprise, how many points did I say I had tonight? I didn't expect to be questioned. And I remembered him saying, I have three points to make tonight. And uh, then he said, so how many did I make? And I thought, I don't remember him ever saying two or three. So I said, one. He said, correct. And then he, he smiled and he pointed to some papers on his desk and said, oh, there are my notes. They'll do for next week. While I was preaching, God just opened the whole thing up to me. And I just followed the Lord and preached which when you think of the chapel and uh, I guess, I don't know, 1,500 people there and this great teacher, to think of him having prepared thoroughly and then just leaving that and following the Spirit and mm. preaching with such authority. Yeah. And uh, he was such an encouragement to me. And so mm. when I spoke to him of my frustration and longing, he said, um, the greatest sin of the evangelical church is telling God what he's not allowed to do. Wow and uh, encouraged me to, he, he encouraged me with those verses, ask uh, and uh, keep on asking, mm. you know, seek, keep on seeking, uh, knock, keep on knocking. He said, each of those is a present continuous. So let me urge you, keep on asking, mm. keep on going after God. Ah. So it was just a hugely encouraging interview. It's fascinating. Yeah, you, you get this, uh, this flavor from some of the great men of God that they would, uh, there was a spontaneity and there was a, uh, a freedom. And I think it's interesting that you're teaching on grace, the verb that you attach to the noun grace, which seems to be the natural verb, is enjoying, enjoying. If there is such a thing as undeserved favour, which God gives to people, the verb which should be attached to it, what is it? Well, I suppose you could say it's receiving, but the active verb 
I think it's quite useful to consider it to be as enjoying. And I think you find in your series, Enjoying God's Grace, many people have been helped by that. But uh, you find the same emphasis among many of the people who have been seriously used by God. That You have this, uh, I was speaking frequently recently about uh, Wilberforce and how all the evidence shows that he was a, a great wit, loads of fun to be around. But when people say, now we need another Wilberforce, they, they, they think we should strategize for something which Wilberforce wasn't. Wilberforce was a, a fun, um, almost chaotically unpunctual, uh, uh, witty and uh, enjoyable person to be around who God used. The story isn't about Wilberforce. The story is about the graciousness of God. Yeah, it's striking to hear that, uh, that testimony. One does wonder if uh, some of these people on whom we say we stand on their shoulders, whether they would actually be welcome in many churches now, because, of course, uh, they, uh, they wouldn't fit the categories of what is considered to be acceptable now. Lloyd-Jones actually going off. There's, isn't there that story in um, Preaching and Preachers where he describes how He'd started to preach a sermon on the radio in America, and he felt, well, I, someone had put up a sign saying, you need to stop now, the, 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 the broadcast is about to end. And he felt, well, the Lord is giving me this impetus. So he didn't stop, he just kept going, and he took the blame. But all the feedback that came from it later was, when can we hear the, that man again? No one was complaining. They were saying they were so helped by what he had done. It's a striking thing. It, so it seems like Lloyd-Jones was something of a sort of he played Edwards to your Brainerd at that moment. He was trying to uh, encourage the young man in what he saw as being the heart of the gospel priorities at that moment. I found him thoroughly encouraging. And I would say that it's in reading through his uh, works, for instance, on Romans and Ephesians that I have been so helped. And I think preaching, as you say, on enjoying God's grace, I think reading Lloyd-Jones in Romans probably is what settled that for me theologically, although I was mm. I was uh, feeling God was speaking to me personally about grace and feeling a release that comes from experiencing and enjoying grace, that when I went through particularly his uh, Romans 7, I felt that nailed it down for me theologically. Mm. Striking. Yes, yeah, so did you see that thing recently, Sinclair Ferguson saying, um, the people who have heard or were exposed to Romans uh, under by Lloyd-Jones there's a mark on them. Hmm. Yes, changed, I heard right? that. I thought that was extraordinary because I would, I would own that very much. I would hmm. say there was a mark on my soul uh, through, uh, particularly working through Romans seven. Hmm. Interestingly enough, I remember once preaching, and using Lloyd Jones' illustration uh, about uh, Romans six actually, where it talks about our uh, having been set free uh, from the power. No, no, actually, Romans 7, beg pardon, Romans 7, when it talks about us having uh, been discharged from law. And I think Lloyd-Jones uses the illustration of a soldier who's just been demobbed, uh, strolling across the parade ground uh, without tie or jacket, and the soldier shouting at him. You mean Someone, the, the officer shouting at him, the sergeant shouting at him? Shouting at him, yeah, uh, because he was uh, not dressed appropriately and... Uh, I gave that illustration while preaching, not not commenting on Lloyd-Jones as such, just using the illustration. And the guy who was present wrote to me subsequently a, a rather angry letter saying, I thought you supposed yourself to be a, a follower of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'd heard. Uh, <laughs> I cannot imagine Dr. Lloyd-Jones ever using such a foolish 
illustration. <laughs> so I wrote back to him and said, I don't claim to be an authority on Dr. Lloyd-Jones, but have certainly been greatly helped by him. And you will find the illustration <laughs> on page such and such of the commentary which I got. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. How, oh, well, how amusing, but how disappointing, because it speaks to a huge tendency in us. I was reading, I remember Sallust saying the same thing in ancient Rome, how he had won the battles for Rome, but he wasn't welcome in the Senate because he wasn't from the right background and so on. And you well, do I think, think people had an image of Lloyd-Jones. Mm. They kind of put him in their school. And that, 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 that image of him was, did not have the full picture of Dr. Lloyd-Jones. And I think he was such a broad and such a long ministry. It's a bit like Spurgeon. You can almost get Spurgeon to say anything if you look in enough commentaries or enough sermons. So it's possible that Lloyd-Jones is vulnerable to be owned by all sorts of different groups. But I think there are those who would paint him a very much narrower man than he was. Mm and glory in his strength in that narrow uh, part of his life. Yeah, yes, that's, yes, that's, that's fascinating. Um, so now, uh, Christian Heritage London, we have the extraordinary privilege of being based here in the centre of the city of London. Uh, around us, in the streets around us, we can talk of where Wilberforce met Newton, where Tyndale's New Testaments were burned, where John Wesley was converted, where extraordinary, extraordinary moments of, of London's church history have happened, where Wycliffe was put on trial and many other things. The illustration of what the gospel has done through these people is very potent, and it's been a huge provocation to later generations to hear these stories. Are there any particular people from church history who you uh, who have made an impression on you, and what kind of things have they encouraged you in? I think for myself, I was a non-reader uh, as a non-Christian. And my early part of my Christian life, I was terribly backslidden from the beginning. Then I had a, a very challenging moment through one sermon that turned my life around. And I radically changed my lifestyle. I'm always grateful that an older lady in the church must have spotted that this young man uh, started coming to prayer meetings and so on. And she started feeding me books. Uh, I used to commute to London daily, so I had an hour on the train from Brighton to Victoria and an hour returning. And prior to this experience, I used to play cards in that hour. Um, but after this, I started reading. And the uh, first book she ever gave me was uh, a book called Jungle Pilot, which was a missionary story of the man who flew the plane uh, that took the five Ecuador martyrs uh, actually, ultimately to their death uh, from the Alka Indians, um, which had happened probably just a, a few years before, in the early 50s, they were slaughtered. And when I read this book, it radically captivated me. And uh, I think my early books, because when I returned that, she then lent me another, and then another, then another through Jumeliot's story, Through Gates of Splendour, Shadow of the Almighty. So my early reading, I think, was fairly recent church history. Young men of mm. maybe five years older than I, mm. ten years older than I, who had thrown away their lives and had a huge impact on me in terms of wanting to be radically committed to Christ. And then on the back of that, gradually... Uh, again, had that kind of missionary background so that uh, uh, Hudson Taylor became a real hero of mine, C.T. Studd, the Cambridge Seven, uh, men who had gone on mission 
had a huge impact. So they would be some of the early writings that uh, reading that I appreciated. Uh, gradually, you know, your appetite broadens and also the desire to go further back in church history. I remember reading J.C. Ryle's Five Christian Leaders, Five Christian Reformers. I love those books and uh, began to well, broaden my interest. I read George Whitfield. I read George Mueller. Uh, I read Murray McShane. Uh, I just began to uh, read as much as I could. Initially, um, biographies, life stories, which uh, had huge impact on me. And then as time went by, beginning to read uh, more widely, reading more theological books, reading books on prayer, uh, other aspects of the Christian life, which I think many of them uh, yeah, had a profound impact on me. And I think that my wasted five years um, probably of about five years as a, a Christian, but very backslidden. I think I was making up the years quite quickly by rubbing shoulders with kind of spiritual giants mm. every day. I remember reading Daubigny's History of the Reformation, which I absolutely loved. Mm. It was almost like a novel, it was so pacey. Yes. And uh, just reading through these magnificent people mm. who gave us our Bibles. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, I read as widely as I could and uh, have tried to continue doing that. So you had comparatively recent church history in Nate Saint and Jim Elliot and so on. Mm. Yeah, of course, that was uh, they've gone down in history as uh, an extraordinary example. And I believe that the Saint family carries on the heritage of, uh, of, of Nate Saint. Yes, yeah. yes, I've met, I've met in Missouri people who are very friendly with a contemporary saint. Yeah, isn't that fantastic? And then, and then at that same time, you were reading, or around that time, you were reading uh, Daubinier and uh, and the Whitfield. Now, of course, at that time, I suppose they're being reprinted by Banner of Truth. Yes, so Banner of the... Truth was real supply of books. Right. It's fascinating to see this, this fanning, because uh, it wasn't as though you were converted from having found a Bible somewhere and then read it, and then from this solitary route. But instead, we find your sister and then her friend and her and her friend leads her and then your sister leads you and then a, a nice lady at a, at a prayer meeting and we don't think you know i think many of us don't consider ourselves world changers but here's someone who says have you read this who's yeah. have you read this and then the impact that that had on you and then the, the impact that that has had subsequently exciting also to see the missionary element uh in the uh in some of these early guys alongside Characters like Whitfield and so on, and then the the dovetailing in with the, that moment, the the public the republication of all those great books through Banner, presumably at that moment. Now, what are you up to at the moment? My life has radically changed in recent years. Um, over a period of 30, 35 years, I I guess got started and then subsequently led something which we uh, came to call New Frontiers, which was. Uh, it started originally with a few house churches around the south coast of England in the county of Sussex. I was living uh, in a town called Seaford uh, on the south coast and then visited the home of a man in a town about 20 miles away and he invited me to come regularly to his home and out from that came a house church and then from there another house church and then from there in the end I was visiting about eight uh, house churches which we helped to get started. Uh, they gradually grew in numbers. Uh, I then hosted a, a monthly uh, meeting initially at a hotel in Brighton 
then the Royal Pavilion in Brighton, and then at Hove Town Hall, which gradually gathered up to a thousand people. And uh, gradually, the impact of these churches we were getting started grew. The name New Frontiers we came up with, and uh, we started the Downs Bible Week, and then just more and more churches. So what started in Sussex grew now to many nations. Many have gone. Uh, we have traveled a lot among the nations and started new churches really right around the world now. And uh, then about five years ago, I handed over the leadership of uh, New Frontiers to a group of other uh, brothers. And so I have been released from leading New Frontiers, though I spend much of my time in New Frontiers churches. Uh, but I don't lead a church anymore. I don't lead a movement anymore. I, I, I travel among the churches when invited. So I've recently just returned from South Africa, where I was speaking in Cape Town and in Pretoria. Uh, the previous month, I'd just been in the USA and Mexico, uh, speaking to churches uh, there. Uh, and sometimes I'm speaking in New Frontiers churches. Sometimes, as just now in Pretoria, speaking a large church that I've known over the years, but not part of what we've called New Frontiers. So life seems to be just as busy, mm -hmm. but it's structured rather differently. It's no longer my being at the centre of everything. Uh, I just get invited in as people invite me. Mm -hmm. That's really good. And one thing that's striking about New Frontiers is that um, it's not um, entirely a closed shop. You do find a lot of um, leaders coming from New Frontiers and some guys who have um, had a big impact uh, internationally who come from New Frontiers. And many of them, of course, have a profile inside of the, the movement. But you've also developed relationships with people across the board. Um, characters, I know I've, I've heard at New Frontiers events, people like John Piper, Wayne Grudem, CJ Mahaney, um, many other names across the board who have made an enormous impact, well, mainly, I suppose, because they have shared convictions with you. Who have been some names of people who you, uh, with whom you have developed relationship? Mm. Well, I think that would be a very wide influence, but uh, I'm so grateful for the privilege of meeting people who have profoundly uh, challenged me and uh, helped me on the way. Of course, it's over many years now, so... Uh, uh, there are people who have uh, had a huge, huge influence on me, some who are less known now because the years slip by, uh, others who are still contemporaries. So, yes, John Piper's writings, and John came to our church in Brighton and spoke to our leaders uh, extraordinarily helpfully. Uh, Tim Keller came and spoke to all our leaders at uh, Westminster Chapel and got hundreds of New Frontiers pastors together and had an outstanding time with Tim Keller, huge blessing. Um, so, yeah, it's been a joy to share the platform with uh, D.A. Carson and John Piper at New Word Alive in Wales. And, yeah, it's a great privilege to meet these brothers. Mm. And one has been undoubtedly influenced both by their books and then by meeting the nice guys behind the books. Um, so, yeah, that's been a huge blessing to us. And, uh, and New Frontiers also, interesting to notice how um, the, 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 the two emphases of those books which you read in the first place, you've got the, the theological impetus, but also the mission element. There have been movements which began as little evangelical pushes, which have somewhat fizzled. 
But New Frontiers is still known for its missional church planting emphasis. Yeah. Now, is that something you would see as the distinctive or what would the distinctives be of New Frontiers internationally? Well, when we first came together, uh, originally I was simply helping some people start churches. Uh, when I was converted, I would say, coming from a completely pagan background, I found it very hard to break into the culture. Mm. Uh, it was very uh, difficult. And uh, because, for instance, it would say on a plaque on the wall of this Baptist church I went to, do not speak in the sanctuary. Uh, it was similar at Westminster Chapel. You, you came, but you didn't speak. You, know, you came to hear the speaker, Dr. Lloyd-Jones. So for me, as a pagan, you know, I came on a Sunday, and then if I wanted to know more, I could come next Sunday and listen to the preacher. So the New Testament has over 40 one another verses. Encourage one another, pray for one another, confess your faults to one another, admonish one another, on and on. We were doing literally none of those. Right. And I would say it's impossible to become a mature Christian alone. Mm. You need fellowship. And fellowship was non-existent. Mm. Uh, so for me, I would say I was gasping, longing to just be, to learn how to live as a Christian. And I could read books, which I did, but there's nothing like the sense of companionship. Now, for me, this was extraordinarily challenging because before I became a Christian, I'd had friends of maybe five years standing through my teenage years who were extraordinarily close mm. and would talk about anything and everything. Uh, we know long into the night you'd share your most deep, deepest thoughts, quite honestly, and yet go to church and nothing of, nothing of that is happening. Mm. Uh, so that was shocking. Uh, I remember reading a, a book by um, John Stott quite early on called One People, which is an excellent book in which he talks about the necessity for small group fellowship. And that was written years earlier, Very an excellent and very practical book. Uh, and I think they were working these things out at All Souls mm. in Langham Place when John Stott was there. So he was something of a pioneer in the small group phenomenon. Mm. But it stirred me. And then also evangelistically, I managed to get all of my non-Christian friends, a group of, I don't know, a dozen or so guys that I knew well, I got them all to church once, uh, but they couldn't handle the right. atmosphere. and said, right. how do you put up with this? Right. So when we started initially house churches, you, the back row mentality has gone immediately. When you go to church, you know, people go and sit in the back row and uh, become observers. Uh, you take a hymn book and you say, thank you very much. And you don't communicate. Mm. And things are on a surname basis. When you go into someone's home, it's immediately Christian name terms, immediately all religiousness has gone. Immediately there's no back row. And you become friends. Mm. Now, when you become friends with an open Bible and you're seriously studying the Bible, and the very first small group I went to as a young Christian uh, in a home, a guy said, uh, I'd like us to study the Bible together, which was about a dozen of us. And he said, I'd like us to believe every promise and obey every command. Are we up for that? Okay. Well, that was pretty different to the average Bible study right. group where people said, what do you think this verse means? Yes. What do you think about this verse? And what's your view on this verse? You think, it's not really of any interest what your view is. What is God saying? Yeah. And what is he requiring? And what is he promising? 
And so for me, this little Bible study group that I started going to changed my life radically mm. because we said we're going to believe every promise mm. and obey every command, which led to my going out from house to house, doing door-to-door -door evangelism, telling people about Jesus. Wow. Because the guy said, let's read the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. So straight away, let's go, because yeah. that's what it says. Mm -hmm. So uh, for me, getting to grips with making disciples and changing our lives, mm. it wasn't happening. Although the Baptist church I joined had a beautiful pastor called Ernest Rudman, who was a fabulous preacher and a loving caring man and taught me i would say three major things first that the bible is totally trustworthy i'm a new christian never any question the bible's the authority you don't mess with the bible he taught me that profoundly uh, secondly he was a man of prayer and um, the church prayer meeting was clearly the power behind the church wow. and uh, he taught me that prayer is fundamental and thirdly Every year, he had a missionary week, which meant every year missionary societies were invited to come Monday through Friday to speak every evening. And during the day, there were meetings and people would come for a week to my home church, Holland Road Baptist Church, to the missionary week, where missionaries were coming from all over the world and talk about their work in India, Africa, all over the world. And then it would culminate in a final night, a Friday night, where there was a big appeal, who would go uh, on the mission field. And the, the church was solid, absolutely packed wow. on those Friday nights. Gracious. I heard Stephen Olford preach there and other great preachers. And so those three things have been pretty formative to me, Bible, mm. prayer, and mission. Mm. So, yeah, we've always been on a mission. Right. Uh, that... Now, the difference for me would have been that my pastor invited all the missionary societies, whereas I would feel that the church, the New Testament teaches that the way the church grew was that you planted more churches, yeah. whereas the missionary societies very often were going outside church to form schools and hospitals and so on, right. uh, instead of church planting. So yeah. church planting was, was not spoken of in those uh, conferences. But right. for me, my life has been involved in church planting mm. as I think the more biblical way of advancing mission. Mm. That's extraordinary. Your, your life and your um, ministry has straddled extraordinary moments. I mean, for example, most people listening to this will have heard the term church planting. I imagine back when you were wrestling with these realities, um, the term was not one which was known to many, church planting. And uh, if you felt a call from the Lord, you immediately went to a society. But now church planting is a thing, as we say now. And you've seen not only that as an ideal, but you've invested into it as an ambition. And you've seen fruit in it, which has been a wonderful encouragement and example. You've also seen great encouragement in many other areas. And you must have seen many people encouraged in the gospel as you've spoken. What advice would you give as broad as you'd like? Well, I don't think things have changed radically. I think that the way people have done it in a contemporary way, that changes all the time. But biblically, if you say from a biblical perspective, it's the basic fundamentals that we've underlined all the years. So what my pastor taught me, the importance of scripture, having final authority, being our place of nourishment, of truth. I've seen many fads 
come and go mm. uh, during my lifetime. Things that sometimes Christians have run after for a few years, maybe a couple of years. And sometimes the people have said to us in New Frontiers, why aren't you doing this? Right. And I've thought, I don't think it's in the Bible. Right. But everybody's doing it, but it's not in the Bible. And then you wait three years and no one's doing it anymore. Amen. It's forgotten. So I think for us, we've tried to be biblically founded, rooted, expositional preaching is what we've always majored on. Our Bible weeks, we're happy to call them Bible weeks. We didn't come up with a fancy name. We called it a Bible week and people came. And there was a lot of Bible, a lot of preaching. And so, uh, yeah, so the Bible's been fundamental and uh, searching into it and reading helpful people. So we've constantly, at our Bible weeks, urged people to, to read. And so we, uh, we, would, we, we sold many hundreds of copies of Grudem's Systematic Theology at our Bible week. So people come camping, but they go home with a thick, systematic theology in their bag hmm. and then when the Matthias commentary on Isaiah came out we sold hundreds of copies of it we have we've constantly pushed helpful books that help you understand the Bible hmm. and always encouraging people to read mm -hmm. so the Bible then prayer when when, it, when I started in Brighton the church that we started in Brighton that's now called Church of Christ the King and it's uh, about 1400 meet, people meet there now uh, but it was 38 people when we started. And uh, uh, I started praying uh, with one other guy in my home on a Thursday morning. And then another pastor from Sussex said, can I join you? Yes, you, of course you can. And then gradually it became 10, 20 people. We couldn't all get into my home. So we went to our church building. That grew and grew and grew. Every Thursday morning, people began to pray. Uh, that happened to me when I was at London Bible College. Sunday afternoon, I and my roommate gave to prayer. By the time I left college, there were about 30 guys meeting every Thursday, every Sunday afternoon to pray. Well, with New Frontiers, we said, right, three times a year, we're going to have two days of prayer and fasting. And uh, when we started New Frontiers and said, right, we're going to work together instead of Terry just helping a few churches started, and we became more formalized as a movement. Some of the things we said, well, what will we do? We said, well, let's meet Thursday mornings to pray. And that carried on right across the churches, wow. e even in America. Mm -hmm. When I went to America, they started Thursday morning prayer. Right. And, uh, and then for us, three times a year, prayer and fasting. And I mean, that started probably with about 20 pastors. And by the time I handed everything over uh, five years ago, three times uh, a year, we would gather. We started using Dave Smith's church in Peterborough. That was our most, our final place. We moved from place to place. And we gathered just over 800 for two days of prayer and fasting. That growth in prayer has always been at the heart right. of what we do. Wow. And so prayer has been huge for us. Wow. And, and if anything, I just want to keep restoring the importance of praying. Mm. And uh, again, I've read so many books on prayer, which I'm so grateful to God for. And uh, I've often commended books on prayer that are helpful we always need help mm. we don't the bible says we don't know how to pray as we ought and we all know that's true so we need all the help we can get yeah so prayers are key to that i'm so grateful having just moved back to sussex to find that hey, i am i'm meeting already now with some to pray every week and so yeah prayer is fundamental and then world mission yes we jesus uh 
has told us to go. God initially said to Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we're on God's mission. I thank God for books like uh, Christopher Wright's book, The Mission of God, mm. and um, Piper's Let the Nations Be Glad, and all these books that inspire us to go on world missions. So, yeah, we're constantly uh, encouraging people to go, trying to help people to plant churches. So those things are fundamental to us. Sweet. Is there a book on prayer which you found especially stood out? Well, there's so many, to be honest. I, I you often find that it's the biographies which are the strongest books on prayer. I actually <laughs> found the biographies. I think J.O. Fraser, Behind the Rangers, it was originally called, and then more recently, uh, his well, I say more recently, it's going back years, but his daughter wrote... Uh, a, um, a more up-to-date copy. Mountain title, Rain. Mountain Rain, yes. And uh, J.O. Fraser was a, a phenomenal praying missionary that saw extraordinary things happen. Mm. And uh, I think the first book was written by the same who wrote uh, the, J, uh, the Hudson Taylor book. But uh, he, he was a remarkable man. Mm. And, you know, wasn't just sitting at a desk doing a Bible study. He was really on the front, out there, you know, <laughs> the rock face, as it were, and saw many, many converted. Mm. And the Lisu people who came alive, uh, he had faith to believe for hundreds of families to be saved and mm. saw it happen. Yeah, oh, sensational. Well, it's, 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 these are superb uh, lessons to be learned. And there's a, something of a dance between them, isn't there? Because which comes first, the prayer... Or the teaching, you know, the teaching is what inspires the prayer. The gospel is what gives us the audacity to go with boldness before the throne of grace mm. that we may make our requests. And uh, it's excellent to hear the combination of teaching, which makes a person secure, which enables someone to pray. Yeah. I had a great privilege of talking with Michael Reeves the other day on the phone. And I was saying he was in the car. And as I spoke to him, I said, what, we, what will you be listening to as you drive back to um, Oxfordshire, and he said, uh, well, I'll be listening to the rest of 1 Samuel, and then I'll be praying. And I thought, yeah, bless God, we need to draw near. And it's wonderful that he who is similarly preoccupied with great truth would be applying it in crying out to him to do great things in our time. Well, thank you so much for your time today, our Father who is in earth, <laughs> and for uh, sharing some of your experiences and advice and stories. It's been a real privilege. Thank you. Thank you, Ben.